Welcome to the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast. This week, I share my interview with Jeremy from Gallus Cycles. on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share an interview with someone who's living or working or fanatically excited about bicycle frame building. And, uh, you know, we record this interview and then, uh, and then I share it with you all. Set your watch to it every Monday. Uh, it's about perspectives. It's about passion. It's about craft. Uh, a little bit about technique, of course. And, uh, and, and the you know, the goal is to get y'all excited about frame building. I love talking about frame building. I've been super into frame building for like 10 years almost. Um, and so, you know, I know some people in the industry and I have conversations with them. And uh, I, why, why not share it with everyone, right? Why not make a point of calling someone every week, you know, getting that interview recorded and then sharing that for anyone uh, to listen to. So my name is Joe. I'm in Syracuse, New York, and I make uh, Cobra frame building tooling, right? So I was interested in bike frame building for a long time, and now I have a CNC machine, and I design, build, manufacture, and sell uh, a couple different tool offerings that help people to build these custom bicycles that we love. Uh, but I'm also just a big nerd about this, and I like doing the show, and I have a YouTube channel. And so if you haven't checked that out, uh, you definitely should look that up. Just go to YouTube and search Cobra Frames. And so uh, generally once every week there, I'm releasing a video. Lately, they're kind of long videos, and it's a mountain bike build series that I've been doing. Uh, I started this back in the winter, and um, we're, we're closing in on it. We're in the rear end of the bike, and I'll be mitering and bending and welding tubes on the rear end of the bike. But pretty much every step of the process from design all the way through, I'm documenting and putting it up on the videos, and uh, you know, I'm just doing the best job I can, um, trying to make it good stuff. So if you, you know, if you haven't seen that, you should definitely check it out. Um, you know, just trying to share the things that I've learned over the years, and trying to make it, you know, kind of fun to watch and fun, kind of fun to have on. Some of my favorite YouTube videos have been the sort of thing where you're learning, but you're also it's just kind of relaxing to have on and to watch somebody else work sometimes while you're drinking a beer and eating some popcorn in the evening or something. So. I hope you'll check that out. That's my sales pitch this week. That's the sponsor of this episode. This week is my YouTube channel, so I hope you'll check that out. Uh, in this week's interview, I'm talking to Jeremy from Gallus Cycles. So he's in, I think, Denver, Colorado, and uh, he used to live in, I believe, Fort Worth, Texas, and he moved to Denver six years ago. He's been building bike frames for think about 10 years and he took the same Doug Faddock bicycle frame building class that I took but he took a couple years before me and um, he also took I think a frame building class with uh, Yamaguchi and Rifle Colorado and uh, maybe some other things along the way and so you know in this interview we're talking about um, a lot of things related to frame building you know how do you manage all of the information that you have to juggle with you know, the multiple orders you have going at once with your customers, making sure you don't screw things up or forget to order stuff and, you know, hold yourself up and, you know, sp spend top dollar buying parts at the bike shop last minute that you could have bought at cost from your wholesaler. 
all, all sorts of things related to that. We talk about, um, you know, the, we talk a little bit about fillet braising and different techniques that, that can be used for that and how we go about that. You know, Jeremy's work is, it's classic work that a lot of times is braised. Um, what's well, always braised. I think it's a lot of times fillet braised. Sometimes it's lugged. Sometimes it's stainless steel lugs that get polished. All of his bikes have nice paint work. Um, a lot of them I think are painted by Rudy and the, the folks at black magic paint who we had on the show last week. And so anyway, really gorgeous old school stuff. I think most of Jeremy's bikes have a one inch threaded fork and, uh, you know, he's pretty much always making the fork a lot of times making a rack. So if you're not familiar with his work, you need to check it out. It's really cool stuff. And he does that classic style really well. Um, yeah. And I just tried to, you know, pull out in the interview, some stuff that might be useful to folks about, uh, you know, advice to newer builders and, and what he needs to remind himself to, to keep the whole thing kind of working. And, and so where the interview cuts in here, I had just asked him when he's working with a customer and they've talked about fit and they've talked about function and now they're talking about construction method and aesthetic because he's known for these different, you know, construction methods, which are very beautiful and novel and part of what he does. How do they navigate those dis- decisions together? Yeah, that's, that's a big part of it. So that. That yeah, that comes up in the conversation when we start talking about materials, and you know, a lot of people come to me because they want a lug bike or they want a byland bike. Uh, you know, so we kind of talk about the options that are available. A lot of times, uh, the cost of doing certain things is a driving factor. You know, someone might want something, but then, you know, when I tell them how much it would cost to do a by land frame or to do lugs from scratch, then things might, things might get edited a little bit. Yeah. Uh, And then, you know, a lot of times, you know, if I do an adventure bike, there's not really any lug sets that work with that. So Mm -hmm. those can either be fillet braised or, you know, that's a good, good time to do a by land kind of construction. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, all of that gets discussed like in that material stage and the design stage, and I've got you know I've worked through pretty thorough lists that uh, basically lists out every possible option of what you could put on a bike, and it's both for my use when I'm building the frame and also for the customer's use to see what those options are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we basically go down the list and a lot of them might not pertain to the style of bike they want, uh, but we still, you know, we go down the list and we check off what they want. And uh, a lot of the stuff would be included in the style of bike they're wanting. And uh, some of the stuff would be a additional add on, like, you know, doing a by lamb or doing like a internal cabling or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of tick off all those boxes and then, you know, add up and the cost of doing any extras. And, uh, usually at this point, just a brief kind of discussion about paint. Cause I usually find that that is a back and forth conversation that usually doesn't get decided till it's ready to ship the bike off the paint. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I kind of keep that conversation a minimal at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we talk about all the different options. We check off the boxes. Uh, I give them, you know, what I uh, estimated, what I think the final cost will be. And then at that point, I usually ask for half of that final cost up front mm-hmm. um, minus what the, uh, you know, the deposit and what the, the bike fit costs. Yeah. Uh, but I've kind of found it's, it's good to have that larger chunk of uh, money up front when I'm buying the materials and also have some money, uh, you know, have a little cash flow on top of that while I'm working on the bike. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of times you'll start a bike and after, after you're done painting it or getting it sent off to paint and getting it built up, it might be a couple months till you get the rest of the painting. Oh, wow. Um, you know, because, because the bikes, you know, you know, the, the project's complete. So, yeah. Um, it's good to kind of have a little bit of money for some cash flow in between. And yeah. Do you use uh, PayPal for invoicing typically? Yeah, a combination of PayPal or just people dropping off checks or a lot of times people hand over stacks of cash. I don't nice. know, it kind of <laughs> depends. Um, but, you know, I do my best to kind of keep things, uh, you know, documented. So, yeah. payment, I usually send an email with a, a invoice or I kind of tack it on. You know, I'll send them updated uh you know, the checklist mm-hmm. also says when I've like done certain things on the bike or things have been ordered. Um, you know, so if I order all the materials and I check off what everything that's been ordered and then if a payment's been made, I'll put that on the same yeah kind of order sheet. And, you yeah. know, so I, I think that's, you know, that kind of stuff is important. I was talking to Chris from Full Moon Bicycles and he was telling me how he, he realized at some point how like, you know, the difficult part of frame building in any real capacity, in any volume, isn't just making the stuff and, you know, learning the craft, making the shop, or even talking to customers. He was saying one of the most difficult things becomes just managing all the information so you don't lose track of who is who, who wanted what, who's paid how much, which parts go on which bikes, when do I need to order the parts so that they show up on time and in the order they need to, and, um, like I've only ever built bikes here and there once in a while. And you have a lot of space in your brain for that kind of stuff when you're only doing projects occasionally. But if you have a whole queue of bikes and each one of them has an associated customer who has all their, you know, riding history and their goals and the reasons that compelled them to buy it. And then they have the specific parts they want on it. And it becomes a nightmare to, you can't hold all that information right in your brain. You go crazy. So you need like, to have some systems, you know, like, and, um, yeah, I think it's important to do. I, I, I can, you know, you, you build a lot more bikes than I ever have. So you'd need to have figured that out or you would have gone crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely a big, big part of the job is just the organization side of it. And like my personality, naturally, I'm not the most organized person. And, mm-hmm. uh, so it's definitely, some tough lessons that were learned early on of, you know, I either missed 
something or, you know, didn't write down that someone made a payment. And uh, so it's definitely one of those things where you make, you make a dumb mistake once and then you're like, okay, I need to address this. And yeah. what's the solution? So, so far, you know, like, and it's, it's an ongoing process of getting better at the organ organization side of it. And, uh, you know, so I'm constantly updating my checklist that I use and, you know, I've got one checklist for the frame components, you know, the brazons, the tubing, the dropouts, uh, you know, that's, that's one checklist in itself. Then I've got another one that is for all of the components, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the wheels, the drivetrain and every little nut and bolt, you know, spacers, uh, cable hangers, that kind of thing. Cause you know, sometimes you'll, you'll order parts and then you'll forget to order a cable hanger. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, luckily, you know, a lot of times you can just run up to a bike shop and get one, but yeah, it's, it's kind of annoying when you miss some little parts. So then it's like, okay, I need that, that one needs to yep. be on the list and, uh, you know, update the checklist. And then I've got a, you know, I've, the last couple of years, I've even implemented another list that's, uh, I call it my process sheet. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, it's basically an outline of, you know, the things that we're talking about right now of that initial discussion, the design stage, the material ordering. Yeah. Um, then I've got, you know, I've got, you know, so this is more for my use than something I'd share with the customers, but yeah, just make uh, sure that you, know, you, you don't overlook anything. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I've got all the things that I need to do frame prep before it goes to paint. Uh, Cause I like, I like facing everything before it goes to paint. Um, you know, just making sure all the flux is off and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then I've, I've got things I need to happen when I get it back from paint. And uh, so there's so many little things going on that, yeah, if, if you've got a little bit of a process and, yeah. and the, the and checklist it, definitely helps there. Yeah, and you're saying that even as someone who's not particularly organized by nature, you like you've had to do this, <laughs> and uh, it's it's interesting how like um, you know just doing anything that, that kind of pushes that on you, like you know you'll find yourself there, uh, whether or not you're prone to that, just because it's the you know without some sort yeah. of system you go nuts. I wanted to ask you about um, you know I see that you build a lot of you know, I think usually you build a whole frame set, like a frame and a fork, right? You wouldn't do a whole lot of frames alone. Yeah, I've done, I mean, I, in total, I think I've done maybe three bikes that got carbon frames on it or a carbon forks on it. Wow, yeah. Um, so not that many. You know, the vast majority get a steel fork. And then you uh, like making, so yeah. you like doing stems and racks and stuff too? Yeah, I definitely, it's a lot of work. Uh, the stems and racks are definitely more of a labor of love because uh, it's, it's a lot of work to make them, uh, especially at the end of a project when you're kind of ready to just get things off the paint and you're probably already behind on the next project. Yeah. And, uh, so it's definitely a labor of love, but, you know, I, I like being in control of the whole process and yeah 
a lot of times the style of bike I make, uh, the things that are available off the shelf as far as racks go. And, um, you know, a lot of my bikes are one inch steer two bikes. So there's not a whole lot of stems that are available, especially if I, if I'm doing like a threadless stem. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've got to kind of do the things that there's not better alternatives for. And, you know, the, the result is, you know, it's definitely worth it because it's a complete package. Yeah. And not only does everything work a lot better because it's been designed together, uh, but then, you know, aesthetically, everything looks, you know, together and complete. Yeah, I think on those kinds of, like, retro mm-hmm. classic bikes, like, you, you make all these, you know, very good-looking bikes with the beautiful paintwork and a lot of times like polished lugs and carved you know sleeves and stuff and to see that with like um you know like a just a one size fits all rack with those thick adjustable chunky adjustable struts that are like powder coated black and the chunky hardware and it would like kill the look i think versus getting a, a really nice you know, like thin, like tubular la- rack where the, the struts that support the rack are the custom length and they're not adjustable and it's not chunky and uh, really completes the look. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that's a lot of work, obviously. I mean, you think about yeah. like the bike frame maybe has a higher level of scrutiny on it that it needs to be straight and whatever, but the bike frame is like nine tubes and a little front rack could easily be that many or more tubes and you still have to do all the joints and all the you know, fit, fit up and alignment. And there's a lot of work that goes into that little thing that you think of as being a no big deal. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of work that goes in the racks. And I've, you know, luckily I've done, you know, almost every bike that's going out now, I've been doing a rack. So I've got my system down pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still one of these things that is constantly evolving Mm-hmm. Um, because there's, there's so many variables, uh, there's so many different things that you're trying to do. Uh, so the racks, yeah, the evolution of the racks, like literally between every bike, I'm, I'm tweaking some little thing. I find something I can do a little bit better. Uh, you know, so there's even just beyond the materials and like all the bends and that, like there's, there's the planning stage and the design stage yeah. uh, is a lot of work as well. Of course. Um, but, you know, that end result of the, you know, the materials, first they're a lot lighter than if you bought it off the shelf rack. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you don't have those ugly, like, adjustable struts on there. Um, you know, the, the way that it fits into the, the fork is nice and clean. You know, because I get to I get to choose exactly where I attach it to the fork, and mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, aesthetically it, it works really well, and then functionally it you know works it's a lot better than you know it's off the shelf thing. Yeah, um, you know because you know kind of I've definitely thought about how it integrates with the handlebar bag and then how the bag attaches to the stem and, you know, so there's, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it definitely helps when it's kind of planned out with 
with the bike and not just a, a add-on. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about fillet brazing some. You know, when I was getting started, I took the Doug Faddock bicycle frame building class, which I know you also took. You took some other classes, too, with uh, Yamaguchi. Yeah. And, um, and when I took that class, we learned how to do lugged construction. But uh, Herbie Helm, who was, you know, an assistant of the teachers, um, yeah. he did a demo in fillet brazing, and I made like a 20-minute like a video or whatever, and I watched that like a hundred times in the next year or two. And I, I did some bikes that were fillet braced. And I thought I could lay down a decent, you know, amateur sort of fillet brazing bead that had a pretty smooth profile. And I've talked to different people at different times over the years about their technique and their process. And so the way that I would do it, the way that I was shown was like you would, uh, you would bring the tubes up to the, that temperature they needed to get to melt the brass or the bronze or whatever, the rod. And you would, uh, you would add like a pea-sized gob of filler and then you would let that freeze and then you would do another one next to it and then you'd kind of go back and you'd flow the first two together. And then you'd advance and you'd lay another gob of filler and, and you'd flow those two together. It was like you were always adding a blob of filler and then kind of going back to where you had joined it and you were kind of melting them together. I don't know if that makes sense verbally. Um, yeah, yeah. And then I've heard other people talk about, and I think I've seen a video of Stephen Belinke doing this maybe, uh, where it's much more like almost like how people just TIG weld or something like you're, it's, you're moving much more quickly and you're kind of laying it in real time and there's not so much of that like back and forth motion. It's just kind of a straightforward, uh, just keep marching around the joint. And I was curious what what method you used and what you recommend uh, when it comes to fillet well, bracing. Yeah, that's an interesting question because um, fillet bracing is still... I mean, I think I'm a pretty good fillet raiser, uh, but I'm, I'm always trying to get better at it. Yeah. Like I, I feel like my, my lug raising has got down really well. Um, you know, the fillet raising, like, I'm good, but I'm always interested in how other people do it and if I can try and do it different and make, you know, because there are different methods. Mm -hmm. uh, I definitely do it, you know, I have been doing it more of the way that you do it, where it's kind of smaller uh, dots, and then you kind of form together, so then it becomes a smooth fillet. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of that is like, you know, Herbie is the one that told me how he did it, and then we didn't, we didn't get a fillet resin demo from him, but, uh, I, you know, I knew Herbie from when I took Doug's class, and I'd talked to him quite a few times since then. And mm -hmm. so I've kind of been employing his method and it works well for getting a nice smooth fill that doesn't involve a lot of cleanup afterwards. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of one of the good benefits of his method. Uh, I'm also intrigued by that more like kind of TIG style uh, fill it that, you know, people like Blinky uses and i think that's what like tom ritchie did a lot uh mm -hmm. you know the kind of larger faster moving uh so it's you I know mean, the big difference the big difference is you know the larger fillets that are you're going faster is like you your heat's going to be a lot higher because you're having to keep a lot more area heated up mm -hmm. at the same time so you're kind of using a bigger flame and the joint's getting a little bit hotter. Uh, whereas I think with the 
the other method, you're not heating up as big of an area. Like you're kind of just heating up the area that you're working on and maybe a little bit of the area right after it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your heat's a little bit lower, but then at the same time, you're taking longer. So the joint's kind of staying hotter for longer. Uh, yeah. You know, from a metallurgical standpoint, you know, I couldn't really tell you which which is better. I I feel like you can kind of argue both ways. Yeah. Uh, of what's kind of better for the joint. Um, it's kind of just, you know, two different ways to skin a cat. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, certainly, um, you know, the method that you're using is working for a lot of the bikes that you've made. And I know there's a lot of folks who use that approach to fillet brazing. And, yeah, that's what I was comfortable with. And I... You know, like I was saying in a different episode of the show, I think when I was getting started, I didn't have uh, a full frame building fixture or much of a shop. And I didn't, so I wasn't making full bikes for a while, but I was just doing lots of practice joints. And um, so I think I got kind of decent at brazing and and TIG welding before I even put those into many bikes. You know, not the best, but like, you know, decent. And um, I just, I didn't think it was that hard to do a fillet without a whole lot of like pinholes and porosity. And I think that's maybe a credit to that style that it, it helps you if you're trying to not have a whole lot of uh, pinholes and stuff. Um, it's not that hard. You know, if the filler is clean and if you don't boil the, the, the filler, um, you know, it, it actually is not terribly hard to lay something decent down. Yeah. I mean, it, it works for me pretty well. And uh, I, like, I like the minimal peanut aspect of it. Yeah. Um, what else was going to ask you here? You went back to trade school and you did some, uh, you, you know, you learned some CNC machining stuff, which is, you know, of course, fascinating to me. I really like CNC machine processes and I saw that you've, you know, machined a dropout prototype or maybe you've finished that by now. But, um, I guess I'm just curious, like what you're sort of like, um, yeah, I don't know where you're taking that. If you want to integrate that much to the work that you're doing with Gallus. Yeah. Uh, the the machine thing, I don't know. It there was a lot of different draws for me to get into it. Um, when I first initially decided to go back to school, I kind of had a little period with Dallas that it was a little slower than it had been. Because um, I I'd, I'd moved up here uh, from Texas um, in 2013. And the first couple of years, I was still getting a lot of orders from Texas because, you know, I still had a little bit of a reputation down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so that kind of got me through the first couple of years of living in Colorado. And then after a couple of years, then I was definitely not the local Texas builder anymore. Um, and then I still hadn't really gotten established in Colorado yet. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden all the Texas orders dried up and then, you know, I hadn't really been, you know, I wasn't the new local builder yet in Colorado. I think it's taking a little longer to get set up here just because there's a lot of other yeah. uh, frame builders. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of had a pretty slow year uh, frame building and I kind of, I don't know, I needed something new to kind of learn and be excited about because, you know, I didn't have a whole lot going on for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, 
So, I mean, I think my ultimate dream, and I think a lot of other frame builders' ultimate dream is to have their own bridge port and have their own lathe. And uh, so, you know, that's it hasn't happened for me yet, uh, just because for a variety of reasons. But yeah, out west, that but, stuff is a lot harder to come by. You know, out east here, you can you can buy a bridge port if you keep your eyes peeled. You can get one for like. I've seen them for like 600 bucks sometimes. You can get them real cheap. They're not that hard to find, but you yeah, get out west. Over here, and, it's, like, it's like three to five grand to get a bridge for it. Yeah. And, uh, and I don't know, the cost of living is a little higher, so I'm yep. always kind of scraping by. And, yep. Um, but, you know, it's like, I'm like, I'm interested in learning machining. I know someday I want my own machines. Uh, and I was like, well, if I'm going to get my own machine someday, I should probably know how to use them. And uh, so that was kind of the draw to, you know, the initial draw to get go back to school was mainly to learn manual machining. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, when I had my own machines, I would be pretty good at it and know how to use them and, you know, not lose a finger. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know... I, we had a really good manual teacher and it was kind of cool because when I was in the school, then if you like drew up some blueprints of what you wanted to make and uh, the teacher thought it was something that was feasible, then you're allowed to make whatever you wanted. Like you didn't necessarily have to do the school's projects. Uh, so I made a bunch of little fixtures for my shop and oh, that's great. Uh, like, I, like I made a lug vice and I made a, a picture, you know, I make these uh, quick release uh, bag decaliers. So I made a picture for making those. And, That's um, great. So, you know, I made all these little tools in the manual class. And then, uh, you know, I was like, well, I'm going to do the whole program. So, like, the first half of it was manual machining. And then the second half was the CNC stuff. Uh, I was actually really surprised how much I got into the CNC stuff when we actually started doing that and uh, you know then I was like man like CNC machining is like even even more cool than manual machining <laughs> and, kind uh, of is. I, I really love yeah. it and it was, it was kind of completely by accident like I really didn't didn't expect to get into it um, but I kind of enjoyed the like you know modeling stuff on the computer and then transferring it over to like a uh, cam software and, you know, working on it on the computer and then, you know, putting the thing on the machine is a whole nother aspect uh, to the process and like a whole, whole nother thing to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I really enjoyed that, uh, the CNC part. And then what ended up happening kind of towards the, the end of the program was I was still kind of slow on the bike orders. Um, so, you know, it was also part of the class where we had to go do an apprenticeship in a machine shop. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I worked in the machine shop for the first one for like four months, and uh, you know, it, was, it was just kind of nice getting actual paycheck every yeah. week and, uh, and there's a really cool atmosphere of working alongside other people that, you know, in that shop environment. Cause 
after years of just working by myself in the shop and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so working in the machine shop is kind of, is kind of what you wish frame building was as far as like, you know, there's a group of people working on, you know, a variety of projects and everyone's just trying to do a good job and make something cool. And, uh, you know, you're, I don't know, it's, it's a little bit more of a group effort than, uh, kind of just calling away on your own. Yeah, um, for but, sure. Cause it's, know, it's, it, it can be very isolating to, to spend so much time in your own shop doing your own thing. And, the only people who you can talk to about it are like friends from the internet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm sure back in the day when there's bigger companies in the U S and maybe they had more of that kind of larger manufacturing kind of atmosphere to it. Um, and I know there's still some kind of bigger companies that employ a few, a few people in their frame shop, but it's a rare, it's a rare thing these days. So, mm-hmm. You know, working in machine shops kind of like that. Uh, you just, you know, the the end product's something totally different. Um, so it's also, you know, the cost of living in Colorado is getting kind of expensive. Um, you know, my cost of living's kind of doubled since I moved here wow. six years ago. Yeah, and uh, I like living here enough that I'm not ready to go somewhere just because it's getting expensive. Um, so I've kind of just kept on working in the machine shop uh, during the week, and then I'm working in my shop nights and weekends mm-hmm. uh, these days. And a big part of that as well is, like, uh, the machining, I think, you know, you've talked about your experience with uh, working in the machine shop with, it takes a long time for them to want to kind of teach you anything. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the process of learning the CNC stuff is kind of a long process to get to that level where you're actually like getting a program and like run your own parts all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, like, I mean, now that I got into the CNC machine, like it's something that I want to pursue and get good at and be able to eventually make my own, my own parts. Uh, but, you know, a little different from your approach of like going out and getting your own machine. Um, you know, I don't see that happening for myself anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, though, you know, that's kind of the ultimate goal is to now have, you know, not just a bridge port, but have a little CNC machine. Um, so I kind of feel like working in a, in a machine shop, uh, is kind of my best approach to learning that craft. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've kind of lucked out and we've got a really good manufacturing kind of scene in Denver, especially for CNC stuff. Uh, there's a lot of machine shops. Um, I mean, a lot of them aren't that good, but there are a handful of really good ones. And I was lucky to get in with a, a really good shop and, uh, you know, there's guys with 30 years experience that are just, you know, total geniuses when it comes to machining. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really cool kind of working under these older guys that are more than happy to kind of share with you what they're doing and how they're doing it. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit of learning from osmosis, uh, 
but at the same time, I'm still kind of practicing my, my programming. You know, I've got like a student version master cam on my computer. And oh, that's cool. That's where I kind of drew up my dropouts on. And then uh, I was... I was able to do like an open lab at the school that I went to. They had an open lab on Friday. So that, that's where I, you know, had the chance to kind of go in and start working on those dropouts a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's, it's one of these things where it's like you're working a lot, but then you're still trying to learn a skill, which kind of involves working even more because you got to do it outside of work. And, yeah. uh, you know, still trying make bike frames at the same time and yeah um so it's it's been a little crazy the last few months because after being really slow for like a year and a half and i went from being like the slowest i've ever been to being the busiest i've ever been oh wow. uh, you know with the bike orders like uh once i started working in the machine shop full-time then i started getting a lot of bike orders at the same time so it's just it's been kind of hectic for a few months now yeah when it rains it pours i guess (laughs) yeah um what advice do you have for other folks who are interested in getting started with frame building and don't have a lot of background with that or or you know advice that you could give to your younger self if that's how you want to think about it like somebody who doesn't know much about it yet uh you know would you suggest to most people to like go take a class or maybe which class you would recommend or like yeah, I don't know. Any advice you have for people getting into it? So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in the, like, go take a class school of thought. Um, I know a lot of people, you know, there's a few builders out there that are self-taught and have just learned from, like, being on forums and talking to people. Uh, I feel like taking a class is definitely the best approach, uh, at least, you know, from the way that I started, I appreciate that I had the opportunity to take a class. Because mm-hmm. uh, firstly, like, you're learning from a master builder who usually most of the people that I've teach the classes have been a frame builder for 30 years or more yeah. uh, before they even started teaching. So, you know, you're, you're basically learning from a master that is not only honed their process but they've also honed the process of how to teach someone yeah which uh, is a which, big deal yeah and you know if you, maybe Doug Faddock told you this but like you know he told us like he's like well the process I'm showing you guys is a little different than how I do it but it's the most straightforward way that I know that you're going to get a good result when you build your frame uh, so it's like they have their process for teaching. So, you know, especially like when I took my first class, which was with Yamaguchi, I'd never had turned on a brazing torch before. I'd probably never used a file before. Um, so a lot of it was very new to me. And, uh, so just having a teacher that can, you know, just show you the basic stuff of like, the right way to turn on a torch and like what your flame needs to look like. And then, you know, how to, how to cut a miter and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, even just that simple stuff, uh, and just having someone to show you the right way to do it right off the bat. That's 
saves you a lot of headache, you know, early on. And uh, the big thing you also learn is how much work goes into building a bike frame. Yeah. Um, like how how long was your class with Doug Fatty? Was it like a two week or yeah, thing? Or? Mine was two week. I think he would do some that were like three weeks where you would get into the paint booth maybe or something. But mine was just build a frame and a fork and. It was not even a hundred percent finished when I left, but like I had, I had learned the steps, and I just had to get, you know, some, had to get a bench and some hand files to do the the last details after I left. Yeah. So yeah, big thing that you see is just that it's a really long process and it's a lot of hard work. So I feel like taking a bike class or a frame building class, uh, not only are you going to be shown the right way to kind of approach things. Um, but you're also going to be introduced to, you know, how, how much work it is to build a bike frame. Mm-hmm. And there's a good chance that after you go through that once, you might be like, well, I'm glad that I got this cool bike frame that I made, but it's kind of a lot more work than I expected it to be. So maybe I'm not going to invest thousands of dollars in the buying a jig and all the tools I need. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that's, that's one outcome that can happen. Or the other outcome is like, like, well, that was a lot of work, but that was pretty fucking cool. So I think I am going to like buy all the equipment now and at least I know the right way to do it. Yeah. Or you, you realize like, that was great. I loved it. I don't ever want to do it the slow way. I will buy all the tools or realizing like, I never want to spend that much money on this. I kind of love filing i kind of love doing it slow uh, one of the things that i thought was really novel about doug faddock's class was that we could have done the class the same if the power went out you know it was middle of summer and so it was warm and the there was lots of daylight and he had lots of window light in that shop and the only power tools we really used were like a cordless drill and then we would do some mitering on the bridgeport mill but like we wouldn't have needed to like the torch doesn't use electricity like it was literally could have been in, you know, like a totally unpowered shop. And there's something romantic about that. And that speaks to some people. And f- for me, I'm a lot more interested nowadays in like machines as much as possible, TIG weld everything, you know, design yeah. on a computer. But there's something to be said for, you know, like, uh, you know, life can be hectic. Or if you have like an office job where you sit at a computer all day or something, or you sit in traffic all day, the thought of like detaching completely from technology and using like, you know, tools and processes that existed, you know, decades or hundreds of years ago, like that, that, I think that speaks to people. And so anyway, whatever it is you get out of the class, um, you know, if you do take a class, that's, I think, as you're pointing out, a really good value that you get to see how you really sit with it, you know, like the bikes are beautiful and you know that you like bikes and maybe you've, you know, you've built things before and you have a sense that you would like it. But when you take a class, you get to try that on for size. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the best approach. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's also fun to just kind of be in that environment and, yeah, uh, and just getting away from, you know, it's also what I like about the class is like, you're very far removed from your normal life. Yeah, it's like you a vacation. You don't have those, yeah, like you don't have all those distractions. Like you get two weeks to just focus on making something yeah. and, you know, and learning something new. And that's, that's really a rare experience. You know, it's like even if, you know, you're in college and you go to 
school every day, but then you're still in your town and you have all those other distractions. So you're not a hundred percent focused on just learning. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like you go to Doug Saddix and Niles, Michigan. There was nothing else to do there other than work in the shop. You know, that you know, reminds like, me, there was an interview. I think it was the welding tips and tricks podcast had an interview with Mike Zancanato or something like that. I think it was Mike Zancanato was talking about, you know, he's a frame builder, of course, but um, he had, when he was getting into TIG welding, I think he said that he booked a time to go out of state to like, it was like the Lincoln TIG welding school or something. And it was something like five days. And anyway, the point was that like, you know, he would sit down and just like weld all day, every day. And, um, and they were talking about whether or not that was worth it or valuable. And he was saying a similar thing where it was like, you know, when in your normal life do you get to focus on learning and developing a new skill that much time? You know, like if you have a job or if you have kids or if you have other work that you got to do, you can fit in a little bit here and there. But like to take a little, um, like a very focused and intensive uh, sort of time that's set aside just for that is, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's definitely a, a cool way to, you know, cool experience all around. And then at the end of it, you end up with a, a nice bike that you get to ride all the time. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I took a frame building class and it wasn't until two or three years later that I got around to making my second bike because I needed to, I didn't have many tools at all when I got started. I had a pretty simple shop and I had learned a pretty simple way to make bikes. But even still, it took me a couple of years to get the things together that I needed to build the next one. And then I didn't build one for myself until like the fourth one or something. So it was, it was like three or so years before I built myself another bike. And, you know, there's something to be said for, you know, you leave the class and you have something. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, I don't want to take too much of your time up today. I appreciate you making time to be on the show. You know, I imagine people who are listening to this podcast are people who are interested in frame building. Maybe they're specifically tuning in because they've followed your work. Uh, is there any is there anything that you want to share with that body of people specifically, or any anyone for for people who might be interested in getting into frame building? If you have any like words of advice or anything, I mean, my my biggest advice, and this is something I remind myself uh, on a daily basis, is you know it's, you, you got to enjoy the craft and you got to enjoy riding, and ultimately that's all that really matters. It's not so much about like getting a million bikes out there or, uh, you know, getting a tons of recognition. It's just, it's always about that, that project that you're working on at that time. And, you know, you just got to slow down and focus on that one thing. And the end result, you know, it's like either you're making a bike for yourself and you enjoyed that process and then you get to ride it all the time and enjoy it or, you know, you made something for someone else and then they get to, you know, get it out and enjoy it. And if you spent your energy just kind of focusing on, on that task and making the best bike that you can make, and, you know, that's, that's what uh, success kind of looks like. Yeah, I like that. I think that's a good measure. You know, it's like, do we do this? You know, if we're not enjoying it, then then what's the point of doing it? You know, you can buy a perfectly rideable and solid bike for a lot less money and with a lot less toil 
And so if you're not enjoying it or if you're not putting your heart into something that your customer is really going to appreciate, then why bother? Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Jeremy. Um, I can't wait to, to share this with everyone. And um, yeah, well, let's talk soon. Cool. Have a good day, Chuck. Yep. Bye. Bye.